Good evening and welcome to Rare Book School 1996. There will be three evening lectures this week. Kenneth Rendell will be delivering the 1996 Malkin Lecture on Wednesday in this room, and I'll be speaking here as usual on Thursday. I hope that you will take a moment while you're here in the room on one of those occasions to look at the Armed Services Edition exhibition, about which many of you will have heard on Ex Libris and elsewhere, that surrounds you in this room. It's the work of an undergraduate out of one of my history courses, uh, said undergraduate Dan Miller, who will be speaking in Rare Book School in week three on his adventures as a first-time curator for those who are in the neighborhood. Tom Tansel gave his first lecture to the Friends of the Book Arts Press in 1980 and has since returned many times. It's always a great pleasure to have him here. He's spoken in Rare Book School every summer uh, since our uh, removal from New York and arrival in New Jersey, uh, arrival in Virginia, excuse me. <laughs> uh, this is what happens when you take afternoon naps. He speaks uh, this evening on studies in bibliography on its 50th anniversary. Tom Tansel. Thank you, Terry. It's always a pleasure to return to Rare Book School. Next year will be the 50th anniversary of the founding of the Bibliographical Society of the University of Virginia, and the 50th volume of Studies in Bibliography will be published. To mark the anniversary, that volume will include an article by David Vandermeulen, the editor of Studies, who is here this evening, uh, on the history of the Society and I will contribute an article on the history of the journal. My paper this evening is a shortened version of that article, and two weeks from now, Dave Vandermeulen will give a preview of his article. In what follows, by the way, I'll use a shortened form of studies in bibliography, either studies or SB, interchangeably. <clears throat> when Fredson Bowers, in 1945, returned from his wartime naval service, to resume his position in the English department at the University of Virginia, he was eager to continue the bibliographical work that he had only just entered into before the war. As matters turned out, by the end of the 1940s, he was responsible for two of the landmark events of 20th century bibliographical history. The appearance in late December 1948 of the first volume of Studies in Bibliography and the publication a year later of his Principles of Bibliographical Description. These were landmark events because they can now be seen to have affected the course of bibliographical history in a profound way. Studies quickly became one of the major bibliographical journals in the English-speaking world and arguably has been the most single most influential one in the second half of the 20th century. The principles brought order into the field of descriptive bibliography by offering the first detailed codification of its methodology, and the book has been the standard guide to the subject ever since. The two events are linked by their common origin in Bowers' own research, primarily his investigations into the printing history of Decker's plays in preparation for a new scholarly edition of Decker, 
and his examination of the practices of bibliographical description in anticipation of a detailed bibliography of Restoration English drama. But the pursuit of these projects did not, of course, require Bowers to found a journal or write an exhaustively comprehensive manual. And a more fundamental explanation of these events lies in his temperament. He had a strong drive to achieve mastery of, and indeed to be a controlling force in, any field that attracted his serious interest. And he had an enormous amount of energy to devote to these goals. To him, it was not enough to embark on a major descriptive bibliography. He first had to systematize the whole field and offer instruction in it through a volume of principles. Similarly, studies results from his desire to be personally responsible for encouraging bibliographical work, especially the analysis of physical evidence as a tool for editors. The strength of his urge to be an authority on bibliographical analysis was no doubt formed, at least in part, by the criticisms that attended his first two bibliographical publications, his 1936 and 37 articles on Decker in the Library, the Journal of the Bibliographical Society in London. In both cases, his analysis was seriously in error, and in each instance, a prominent scholar, W. W. Gregg the first time, James G. McManaway the second, exposed his erroneous thinking in a later number of the library. The importance of these rebukes for his bibliographical education cannot be overestimated. His determination to redeem himself produced, almost immediately, an article for the library on running title analysis, the very subject in which McManaway had found his knowledge wanting. But he had time for only one more such article before his wartime service, and after that enforced interruption, he was undoubtedly all the more impatient to establish his authority in analytical bibliography. One could not argue that a new bibliographical journal was particularly needed at that time, but Bowers, having been forcefully convinced of the powerful results that could come from bibliographical analysis, began to take on the role of proselytizer for the field, and a journal would give him greater effectiveness in persuading scholars to produce more bibliographical articles. That his own university should be known as a center of bibliographical and textual study was a natural element in his program, and he was involved in the formation early in 1947 of the Bibliographical Society of the University of Virginia. The idea that one of the principal activities of the society could be the publication of an annual volume of articles was very probably in Bowers's mind from the beginning and was doubtless a topic of discussion during the early months of 1947. But definite plans for such a volume were not formulated until December 1947, just after the collector Linton Massey was elected the society's second president. During the next six months, enough work on the inaugural volume had been done to permit the inclusion of an announcement of it in the June 1948 number of the Society's newsletter. Then in early September, a prospectus was circulated by mail both to members and to non-members, showing the design of the text pages and providing an order blank, price 250. The volume that appeared in the final days of 1948 printed in December at the William Byrd Press of Richmond in an edition of 1,000 copies, contained 209 text pages bound in heavy cream paper. 
There was an elegance, even a leisurely spatial extravagance, conveyed by the design, beginning with the cover title in its flowery frame and the book block with its decal foredges, and continuing with the well-leaded text pages of Gaudi's monotype Garamont, surrounded by generous margins, the coated paper plates, and the divisional title leaves for the main articles. If the physical appearance of the journal was far removed from the utilitarian typography and layout of many scholarly journals, there was no question about the scholarly nature, indeed distinction, of the contents which in fact set the pattern for the succeeding volumes. The contributions were divided into two groups, 11 articles first, followed by a section of six short bibliographical notes. The pieces ranged widely in subject from the medieval to the Victorian and represented various kinds of bibliographical work, including manuscript examination, publishing history, textual study, and the analysis of physical evidence in printed books. It was clear that Bowers conceived of the journal as one that encompassed all bibliographical study, with no restriction as to the geographical origins or genres or periods of the material studied. The roster of contributors also presaged for future volumes in its mixture of well-established bibliographical scholars, for example, Kurt Bueller of the Morgan Library and James McManaway of the Folger, little-known assistant professors such as C. William Miller of Temple and Alan Stevenson of the Illinois Institute of Technology, and graduate students. It was natural in the initial volume to draw on local talent, and the parochial nature of the resulting list of contributors is the only way in which the contents of this volume appear uncharacteristic in retrospect. Ten of the 17 contributors had present or past connections with the University of Virginia. One full professor, Joseph Carrier of the French department, one associate professor, Bowers himself, one assistant professor, George Pace, five graduate students, Mary Virginia Bowman, Jesse Ryan Luck, James S. Steck, George Walton Williams, and Philip Williams, and two alumni, McManaway and Miller. An important advantage to Bowers in calling on his graduate students was that he could thereby publicize the kind of bibliographical analysis he was encouraging and could send a signal to potential contributors that the journal was especially interested in such work. All told, there were seven articles of bibliographical analysis which lent a distinct flavor to the volume and foreshadowed the, the journal's future role in developing analytical bibliography. The reviews, though few in number, were warm in their praise. Kurt Bueller, writing in the papers of the Bibliographical Society of America, set the tone by saying, the journal has certainly made a most auspicious beginning. Perhaps the most notable comment in his review was his reference at this early date to a Bowersian school of bibliographical analysis. Greg, too, in his review, spoke of the University of Virginia as his words, the center of a very live and extended school of bibliography in all its aspects, not least in these highly technical ones that a small band of American scholars have made peculiarly their own. R.C. Bald, who had spoken on analytical bibliography at the 1941 English Institute, where Bowers gave a paper on headline analysis, offered the fullest assessment of the significance of the publication in Modern Language Quarterly. 
The appearance of this handsomely printed annual, he said, is an event of some importance for which the credit is largely due to the energy and enterprise of the editor. He, more than anyone else, is responsible for the fact that not only has the University of Virginia a bibliographical society, and what other American university has one, but that a group of colleagues and students have become sufficiently interested in the history and practice of printing to make discoveries and record their findings. Of course, not all of these papers have come out of Charlottesville, but enough of them have done so to stamp on the collection the imprint of a group. He added, correctly as it turned out, the volume is almost certainly the forerunner of a distinguished series. Thus launched, the journal proceeded steadily to make its annual appearance, presenting the same mix of bibliographical and textual scholarship. Although the library had already shown its hospitality to textually oriented bibliographical analysis, Bowers was clearly staking out this area as a particular concern. What one could infer as a direction in the first volume was confirmed in the succeeding ones. The second volume opened indicatively with an article by William B. Todd that sorted out the early editions and issues of Matthew Lewis's The Monk. Bowers had been able to hear an earlier version of this article when it was delivered before the Society in December 1948, and his request to be allowed to consider it for publication can stand as a prominent example of a scene that was repeated many times in later years. Bowers's securing of articles at the time of their oral presentation at conferences. The episode also symbolizes Bowers's willingness, indeed eagerness, to support the work of unknown scholars as long as it was of high quality, for Todd was at that time a graduate student at the University of Chicago with no publications to his credit but with a pioneering dissertation in progress on the application of analytical bibliography to 18th century English books. With the publication of Todd's first article coming a year after the publication of Stevenson's first bibliographical article, Bowers's journal had the distinction of introducing two major bibliographical scholars in its first two volumes. And both were loyal to it, Stevenson publishing there four more times and Todd 15 more as of 1997. This nurturing of talent not only resulted in distinguished contributions, but fostered the identity of the journal with a school of bibliographical work and as the place where the most advanced developments in analytical bibliography were likely to be found. The second volume contained other analytic, analytical pieces and also treated a field not represented in the first volume, the history of bookbinding. The presence of Paul S. Duncan's piece on the imprint of Dryden's Trilus and Cressida illustrated Bowers's willingness, displayed many times later, to print articles taking different points of view from his own, for Duncan found Bowers's earlier article on the subject unconvincing. The review of this volume in the London Times Literary Supplement said, with this volume, the society firmly establishes its sponsorship of a journal which should be on the shelves of every great reference library. Bowers's role in the immediate success of studies went beyond his astute choice of contributors, for he also entered actively into the shaping of the contributions. Sometimes he offered detailed suggestions for revision, and at other times he made the revisions himself. 
George Walton Williams, Bowers' graduate student at the time of the second volume, has recently described how Bowers handled his article in that volume. Reading galley proofs on my second submission to studies, he said, I was surprised to find set up in type in the center of my article paragraphs I had never seen before. (laughs) When I asked him what had happened, Bowers acknowledged that they were his. He had had a few thoughts on the topic of my paper and had just slipped them into my argument. That's what a good editor does, he explained. (laughs) Some months after publication of these joint thoughts, W... uh, uh, This is Williams continuing. W.W. Gregg commented on them in an article of his, particularly praising me for certain insights, which were Bowers' insights, of course. (laughs) By this silent editorial accretion, a graduate student was helped on his way, an article was strengthened, and a volume of studies was made a better book. That's uh, uh, Williams' conclusion. That graduate students were not the only contributors given such assistance is shown by Kurt Bueller's experience in connection with the first, first volume. In reviewing that volume, Bueller explained why he did not regard it as inappropriate to comment on a volume to which he had contributed. There may be advantages in these special conditions, he said, since I can testify to the great care exercised by the editorial board. It is not too much to say that Professor Bowers virtually rewrote a whole section of my contribution. Distinguished as the first two volumes were, studies fully came into its own with the third volume, which brought together as impressive a group of contributors as any volume of bibliographical essays has ever had. It opened with four major essays on textual matters by R.C. Bald, W.W. Gregg, Archibald Hill, and Bowers himself. All four had been delivered at the English Institute of 1949, and Bowers's presence on that program indicates how these papers came to reside in studies. Gregg's essay, The Rationale of Copy Text, which Bowers had helped Gregg to formulate, was to become one of the most seminal papers in the history of English scholarship, the point of departure and often of contention for textual critics throughout the next half century. Following these articles came pieces by Kurt Bueller, the bookbinding scholar Ernst Kiris, Philip Williams, Charlton Hinman, who had written a doctoral dissertation under Bowers and was to become the leading analytical bibliographer with the publication in 1963 of the printing and proofreading of the first folio of Shakespeare, C. William Miller, William B. Todd, contributing a basic article on press figures, Rollo G. Silver, who was to become the most distinguished historian of American printing, and J. Albert Robbins. These 12 articles by themselves came to more pages than either of the first two volumes, and they were followed by 14 bibliographical notes, ranging from Chaucer to Poe, and a selective checklist of bibliographical scholarship for 1949, the first of what was to be an annual feature through 1974. It is easy to see why John Carter, writing anonymously in the Times Literary Supplement in uh, 1951, said, For the interest and importance of its contributions, this third volume of Professor Bowers's periodical must take its place in the first rank of such publications anywhere in the world. When, a year later, the fourth volume appeared in hard covers, 
blue paper-covered boards with paper labels on the spine and front cover, studies had assumed most of the formal features that would characterize it from then on. The first three volumes were bound in stiff paper wrappers of different colors. Labels on paper-covered boards continued to be the pattern through 1966, after which the casing was cloth with stamped panels replacing the paper labels. With each year's casing a different color, the ever-growing presence of SB on the shelf has been a colorful one from the start and now amounts to a six-foot display. Inside the volumes, <clears throat> small changes in design took place in the early years. The separate title leaves for major articles were eliminated as of the second volume, <coughs> and the layout of the major article openings was revised in the second and again in the third volume, at which point it achieved the form that has been followed ever since. The size of the text block on each page has remained virtually the same from the third volume. The Garamont type of the early volumes was replaced by Linotype Baskerville as of 1957, and the last use of Strathmore pastel paper was in 1961, from which point the decal edges also vanished. The printing was done in the earlier years by the William Byrd Press of Richmond and in later years by Heritage Printers of Charlotte, North Carolina. The scholarly contents of the fourth and fifth volumes reflected the now well-established pattern with important contributions by several familiar names along with the first contributions from two important bibliographers, Philip Gaskell and Alan Hazen, the former with his influential study of 18th century type sizes and the latter with one of his investigations of 18th century paper. The spirit conveyed by these first five volumes was effectively caught by Philip Edwards in his review of the fifth one for Shakespeare Quarterly. Professor Fredson Bowers has created a new aristocracy in the world of bibliography, and the works he has here collected, so often revealing his own inspiration, have that kind of energy and sense of discovery which moved the Bibliographical Society of London in the days of Pollard, Gregg, and McCarrow. The volumes of studies that appeared regularly at the beginning of each year over the next four decades continued to display the same broad range of interests, although a few variations in emphasis are discernible. Such shifts did not, however, result from decisions on Bowers's part, but rather reflected changing patterns in scholarly research. For example, compositorial and presswork analyses of Elizabethan and Jacobean play quartos were a prominent feature of the early volumes, but by the 1970s, they no longer occupied the same dominant position. Studies of 19th and 20th century books, which Bowers had tried to stimulate early, did begin to increase in the early 1960s as more scholarly attention was being directed to this period. Indeed, a considerable number of the volumes after that time contained more pieces dealing with the past two centuries than with the Renaissance. Work on incunabula and early manuscripts has always held a smaller presence in studies, though a steady one from the beginning as a result of Bueller's 15 contributions through 1973. But in the 1980s, there was a marked increase in the number of articles on early manuscripts. What may surprise some people is how prominently the 18th century has figured in SB's contents. 
Even in the early volumes, the number of 18th century contributions frequently equaled or surpassed the number devoted to Renaissance drama. And from 1959 on, it was usually dominant by a significant margin. All told, the number of articles dealing with the period 1660 to 1800 is about the same as that concerned with the previous century and a half. One other category that has been a significant presence in studies consists of essays on textual theory and bibliographical methodology. Though their numbers do not, do not loom large, many of them have been extraordinarily influential. Greg's rationale was the most notable of several such essays in the early volumes, and since 1965, at least one essay of this kind has appeared in each volume. The presence in the 1962 volume of two articles, the opening two, on the role of computers in textual study shows how alert Bowers was to new developments in their early stages. And the result of this openness is that the full run of studies includes important examples of all approaches, not only as analytical bibliography there, but the history of publishing and reading, or what is now called book history, or the social history of books, is there as well. A salient characteristic of the assembled run of studies is its inclusion of several uh, series of articles by individual scholars. Although they were not usually presented as single studies divided into installments, since Bowers felt that in general an annual was not well suited to serialization. In only eight instances was there explicit serialization, the longest in seven parts being Cyrus Hoy's study of the shares of Fletcher and his collaborators in the Beaumont and Fletcher canon, which derived from Hoy's graduate work under Bowers. Far more often, what may be regarded as a series consists of independent articles in which a scholar repeatedly attacks a single topic from different angles. Two of the best known, already mentioned, are Stevenson's series on the analysis of paper and Todd's on the development of analytical techniques for 18th century books. Among the other prominent scholars who have been steady contributors are Richard Altick, Martin Battiston, G.E. Bentley, Edgar Shannon, Robert K. Turner, and uh, a number of others. Of all the writers who have contributed more than once or twice to SB, Fredson Bowers himself was one of the two who supplied far more material than any others to the first 50 volumes. Although Bowers could have published his own work in every volume, he chose to include himself in only half the volumes he edited. And one can hardly complain about his including himself that often, since many of his articles are among the most significant that have appeared in studies. One could argue that his most influential contribution was one of the shortest, Some Principles for Scholarly Editions of 19th Century American Authors. This short piece supplied the underpinning for the Center for Editions of American Authors and the whole movement to apply Gregg's rationale to the editing of 19th and 20th century literature. Other widely cited general articles are his Some Relations of Bibliography to Editorial Problems, which, coming in 1950, helped set the stage for the kinds of editions he soon began to produce and inspire. And his article called Gregg's Rationale of Copy Text Revisited, in which Bowers acknowledged some limitations in Gregg's approach. I cannot avoid mentioning that I am the other writer who has contributed most often. 
since my articles in every volume since 1963 have given SB a greater concentration on the theory and method of descriptive bibliography and textual criticism than it otherwise would have had. But I will leave it to others to comment on the significance of these essays. It should also be noted that the most important articles have not come exclusively from writers who have contributed repeatedly. The prime example is, of course, the rationale of copy text, which was Gregg's only contribution. Similarly, Bruce Harkness has contributed only one note and one article, but the article was Bibliography and the Novelistic Fallacy, which has been often cited as a classic statement of the need for reliable texts of novels. Edwin Wolfe made only one appearance in studies, historical grist for the bibliographical mill, but it was an extremely important argument for paying more attention to bibliographical analysis in the examination of non-literary Americana, an argument that has not yet been sufficiently heeded. Peter Davison's one article so far, Science, Method, and the Textual Critic, is an outstanding treatment of a difficult subject. R.W. Franklin's one article so far is a landmark study of Emily Dickinson's fascicles. And one of David Vandermeulen's two contributions during Bowers' editorship, the identification of paper without watermarks, is a major advance in the bibliographical analysis of paper. Any list of the most important articles in studies would always include D.F. Mackenzie's Printers of the Mind, the third of his five contributions thus far. This 75-page article pointed out questionable statements in a number of the articles of bibliographical analysis, including some of Bowers' own, that had been published in SB and elsewhere over the previous two decades, and suggested that perhaps the time had come to spend more effort uncovering the data in printers' records than in attempting to deduce printing history from clues in printed matter. Inductive work, such as analytical bibliography, always involves uncertainties, but Mackenzie had located instances where unwarranted conclusions had been drawn. It was salutary to have these instances publicized, but whether their existence called the whole field into question was, of course, a different matter. Mackenzie, who had previously contributed a good example of bibliographical analysis to S.B., may not have intended to suggest that analytical bibliography should be abandoned. But the article lent itself easily to such an interpretation, and there were many who wished to read it that way, having already felt that the post-war excitement over bibliographical analysis had gotten out of hand. Mackenzie's article was not the sole reason for the decline in interest in analytical bibliography since then, but it did play a role. It fit the temper of the times, which in literary studies was beginning to turn away from a concern with authorial meanings and toward a view of texts as social products. Analytical bibliography is not, of course, tied to authorial intention, but since it had largely been developed by editors interested in such intentions, the two were associated by many people and thus lost favor together. At the time of Printers of the Mind, Mackenzie had not yet published any of his arguments for the sociology of texts, but it is not surprising that his writing moved in that direction. His SB article stands as a key document of a major turning point in textual criticism. It also reflects three other characteristics of SB, 
besides the journal's consistency in publishing seminal articles. One is that SB has always been hospitable to long essays when their length is justified. A second characteristic symbolized by the Mackenzie article is Bowers's willingness to publish articles with which he personally disagreed. He knew Mackenzie's article was important, and he printed it, even though he could not endorse its tone or its conclusion, as he later stated in print. In one early volume, he made a point of placing side by side two articles of opposed viewpoints on the issue of modernization, though he strongly disagreed with one of them. But usually articles he demurred at were allowed to stand on their own, though occasionally he printed a rejoinder later and was even tempted to supply it himself. When I sent him a short piece critical of Paul Bender's note on copy text, he not only printed it the next year, but told me that before my note arrived, he had planned to write such a reply himself. A third characteristic of SB that one is reminded of by Mackenzie's appearance is Bowers' efforts to enlist foreign scholars as contributors. Although few appeared in the first five volumes, the sixth volume contained work by five British scholars, and the number from the United Kingdom has remained strong ever since, along with a good representation in later years from Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. But the image of studies as an international forum owes less to numbers than to the quality of the foreign contributions. Two of the most momentous of SB articles, after all, were by foreigners, Greg and Mackenzie. Besides those pieces, SB has published important work by, to name only a few, Alice Walker, Philip Gaskell, Cyprian Blagden, Harold Jenkins, Dennis Rhodes, Peter Davison, Keith Maslin, and B.J. McMullen. In the past two decades or so, European textual scholars have been particularly drawn to the study of authors' revisions and independent versions of works, and studies has been the best place in the English-speaking world to learn about these developments. As early as 1975, Bowers published an article of Hans Zeller's that has been repeatedly cited as the best introduction in English to the German approach. And the 1994 volume included translated essays by one French textual critic and three German ones, although Bowers was not himself attracted to the study of versions or to the theorizing represented by their articles. It is perhaps ironic that these papers had been offered at a conference celebrating Bowers's 80th birthday, but it is entirely characteristic of him to have admitted them to studies, recognizing that they reflect a significant movement. Bowers's openness to the best textual and bibliographical work being done anywhere in the world, even when it challenged his own firmly held beliefs, gave studies an air of vitality and excitement year after year. Volume 20, 1967, calls attention to itself by the presence in it of two forewords marking the Society's 20th anniversary. One of them, by Sir Frank Francis, director of the British Museum and immediate past president of the Bibliographical Society in London, recalled that S.B., in his words, sprang into being full-grown and fully armed like Minerva from the head of Jupiter whose thunderbolts she wielded from time to time. The identity of Jupiter was obvious. 
Francis continued, the society with the prestige it now enjoys and the great success it has had is substantially the image of its editor, whose industry and monumental achievements in analytical bibliography are the admiration of all bibliographers. This anniversary volume attracted some attention, most notably in the form of a full-page article in the Times Literary Supplement entitled Bibliography and Dr. Bowers. It began by referring to the time when, in its words, the first volume of the Society's studies came forth to astonish all the bibliographers of Europe. The new periodical, it continued, rapidly established an authority rivaling that of the library, and it has maintained its distinguished position ever since. By now, every bibliographer is in its debt. Many other volumes of SB were noticed in the Times Literary Supplement in the days of its bibliographical back page, which regularly covered current numbers of bibliographical journals. These reviews often contained phrases like the sustained excellence of Professor Bowers's journal or the excellence we have come to expect. One of the most amusingly complimentary of the TLS reviews dealt with the 1957 volume. The closing paragraph gives the flavor. The citizens of the Old Dominion, which this year celebrates the 350th anniversary of the landing of the first English settlers at Jamestown, will no doubt be too busy with fireworks to pay much attention to the bibliographical powerhouse developing in their state universities, but they can be proud of its products and of its influence. The importance of these reviews in publicizing the contents of SB was considerable, both because of the large and wide readership of the TLS and because it was practically the only publication that systematically examined the contents of bibliographical journals. Indeed, scholarly journals in any field are rarely reviewed, and no doubt it was SB's physical appearance, a hardcover volume, that caused the book review editors of a number of scholarly journals to assign it for review. SB was thus more fortunate than most journals in the number of times its contents were analyzed in reviews in major journals and by major scholars. Although the reviews always contained a great deal of praise, they not infrequently registered complaints as well. The quality of bibliographical writing was one target for several reviewers over the years. A critical attitude toward analytical bibliography also surfaced in a number of the reviews, even early ones, showing that the controversies surrounding analytical bibliography existed long before Mackenzie's Printers of the Mind. Such reviews, indeed, helped to place SB at the center of its field, though they constituted only a part of the commentary. One must remember that a fuller guide to the influence of a journal, if a harder one to measure, is the use made of its articles in later scholarship. In more recent years, studies has not received as many reviews, but anyone who reads widely in the field knows that its presence has become even more prominent as the volumes have mounted up and as more and more SB articles have been found indispensable by a wide variety of scholars. A new era in the annals of studies opened with the 1993 volume, which marked the beginning of David Vandermeulen's editorship. 
That the years since then can be called a new era does not point to any difference of approach that van der Mulen has brought to the position, but only signals the fact that a change of editorship after 45 years is obviously a major event in the life of any journal. Not that many journals have ever experienced such an event. For an editorial tenure of that length is as rare among scholarly journals as it is among general circulation periodicals. And when the editor is also one of the great figures in a field, this, uh, <clears throat> the situation is rarer still. If one tries to think of other major bibliographical scholars who have edited journals for long periods, one is bound to think first, in the English-speaking world, of R.B. McCarrow, who founded the Review of English Studies and edited it for 15 years, and A.W. Pollard, who edited the library for 31 years. But Bowers's 45-year editorship far surpassed both their terms, indeed almost equaling the two combined. Because Bowers at the same time published a large body of his own scholarship, some three million words plus 68 volumes of editions, and was a busy teacher and administrator, it is sometimes assumed that he spent little time on studies. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Bowers was, in fact, an extremely active journal editor. No distinguished journal can exist without constant attention, and the SB editorship was a basic fact of Bowers's life, a continuous and demanding activity that existed alongside his other projects. His shaping hand is reflected throughout the published contents as a result of his solicitation of articles and his treatment of them after he received them. Of course, the character of the journal derives even more fundamentally from his receptiveness to all kinds of work. He conducted SB with an open-mindedness that surprised some people who thought that the assertiveness of his own writing indicated a lack of openness to other points of view. But just as the uncompromising quality of his public statements emerged from a principled and reasoned position, not from personal pique or stubbornness, so his standards for SB concerned cogency and scholarly responsibility, not a particular line of thinking. The intensive labor of Bowers's style of editorship was borne largely by Bowers himself. Before Vandermeulen's arrival in Charlottesville, only one assistant was recorded on SB title pages. L.A. Berlin, a member of the Virginia English Department, was named there from 1964 through 74. And three other names, Gillian Kyles, Clinton Sisson, and Susan Hitchcock, made brief appearances as assistants to the editor in 1974 to 77. When Bowers retired from the English department in 1975 at the age of 70, he had made no arrangements for a successor as editor, and in any case he wished to continue editing the journal. But finding a successor was much on his mind in the years that followed. It happened that he met David Vandermeulen in the North Library of the British Museum in the spring of 1978, and seeing the kind of work Vandermeulen was doing, invited him to submit the results of his research to SB. After a few years, Vandermeulen did send Bowers two pieces that derived from his work for a remarkable 1981 dissertation at the University of Wisconsin. The dissertation was a descriptive bibliography of Pope's Dunciad, and it set new standards for bibliographical description. 
both in thoroughness and in the development and use of new techniques. Bowers published the two articles and recognized that the dissertation was a comparable landmark to William B. Todd's Chicago dissertation some three decades before in the early days of SB. Vandermeulen thus joined the distinguished circle of young scholars who had benefited from Bowers' encouragement at significant moments in their lives. Bowers suggested to the English department that Vandermeulen be interviewed for a position. An offer was made in December 1983, and Vandermeulen agreed to join the department in the autumn of 1984. It was understood that part of his time was to be spent assisting Bowers with studies, and it did not take Bowers long to see that Vandermeulen, with his thorough knowledge of bibliographical and textual work and his judiciousness, would be an ideal successor. Bowers continued as editor until his death in the spring of 1991, and Vandermeulen thus had the opportunity of working with him for nearly seven years, gradually taking over many of the responsibilities for reading submitted articles and seeing volumes through the press. Volume 45, which appeared early in 1992 and was the first to come out after Bowers' death, contained an announcement stating that Vandermeulen had been appointed as the new editor. He had actually handled most of the editorial work for that volume, but Bowers' name was allowed to remain as editor, and it was the next volume in which Vandermeulen was first named as editor on the title page. That volume was dedicated to Bowers, and since that time, Bowers' name has continued to be recorded as founding editor on the copyright page. Beginning in 1995, there is another name listed below it, that of Elizabeth Lynch, assistant to the editor. The volume dedicated to Bowers opened with my biography of him, which was followed by a 30-page checklist of Bowers' published work and a two-page chronology of his career, both prepared by Martin Battiston, six distinctive, but in other respects, it and the succeeding volumes under Vandermeulen's editorship have included the same kinds of articles that have characterized the journal from the beginning. Several of the same contributors have reappeared in these volumes, and the newcomers have included such a major figure as Paul Needham. Some of the particularly important articles <coughs> have indeed been by first-time contributors, such as, to name only two, <coughs> Anne Myers on the editing of King Lear and Maura Ives's on the bibliographical description of periodicals. Vandermeulen is clearly continuing the tradition of being hospitable to all kinds of bibliographical scholarship. <clears throat> a new interest that one may discern <clears throat> in the most recent five volumes is an effort to promote work on the history of bibliography, especially in the form of biographical studies of important bibliographers. My biography of Bowers has been followed by an illuminating discussion of Alan Stevenson by Paul Needham and a graceful memoir of J.D. Fleeman by David Ferrer. The latter piece is, in fact, part of a series of essays in honor of J.D. Fleeman, as the table of contents is headed. All but two of the articles in the volume are part of this grouping, which constitutes the first instance in which a volume of studies has been designed as a festrift or has had an overall theme. Given S.B.'s strong record in 18th century studies, and its new interest in biography, 
a festschrift for a distinguished bibliographer of Samuel Johnson seems entirely in order. And not surprisingly, the list of contributors to volume 48 is one of the most stellar in the history of the journal. Vandermeulen's five volumes have thus shown some innovation, but strictly within the established tradition, the character of the series has been maintained. For the past half century, studies in bibliography has been at the heart of bibliographical developments. Its 50 volumes, essential reading when they were published, will continue to be essential reading, not only because they are central to the bibliographical history of the times, but also because they can contain an extraordinary number of fundamental articles of permanent interest. This fact has been recognized by the decision to mark the anniversary by making the entire run of studies available in electronic form on the Internet. From now on, readers will have access to all the material in studies, all 915 articles by 503 writers, all 13,273 pages, through the Bibliographical Society of the University of Virginia's site on the World Wide Web with the advantages for searching and downloading that are provided by this form of publication. Studies will continue to appear in linotype form, and the the text of new volumes will be added to the electronic database as well. Although SB is by no means the first scholarly journal to appear in electronic form, it is the first to have its entire and sizable back file made available on the Internet without charge. This action makes a clear statement that the whole file is of permanent value and that any available technology for making it widely accessible will be used. One hopes that the society's handling of SB will be followed by those responsible for other journals in the electronic future. Certainly the anniversary of studies in bibliography is being marked in a forward-looking spirit And with an experienced new editor firmly in control, there is every reason to regard the journal's future with confidence. Thank you.